A Polar Voices Perspective with Norma Cassie. My name is Norma Cassie. I'm uh, uh, from uh, northern Canada in a community called Old Crow Yukon. And um, uh, we are people of the lakes. We're Vantatkuchin, that's people of the lakes. And uh, we, we live in North America's second biggest wetland. Mm-hmm. I've lived there most of my life. Um, during my younger years so it's a absolutely to me one of the most beautiful places on earth and where there's thousands of lakes and we live with many animals such as muskrats beavers ducks um, the migratory birds there's about 143 species that come from all over the world to have their young ones within our region they lay their nests everywhere in our in our country all the way up to the arctic coast and um, to the arctic national wildlife refuge and the arctic coast in the Inuvialuit region and including my area in Oak Grove Flats. I've lived um, very very lucky to have lived through a time when these animals were in huge abundance. They were lots and lots of birds where the birds would fly in from the south and uh, I never knew where they came from at that age. I was a baby growing up watching them. And uh, they'd come in from all over the world. From what I hear, my grandpa would say, oh, they just come from way outside. He would say, you'll you'll find out someday. Because he don't really know where they come from other than he knows they come from warm countries far, far away. And they'd just come in and blacken the sky and and, uh, they'd land all over our lakes and... uh, and they'd start singing their songs and and they they greet each other they they are so happy to see each other because some i learned later come from places like argentina from chesapeake bay from uh, from uh, maui um, on the islands of the hawaiian islands some come from uh, chile way far away countries and they all come to see each other and they they congregate in in our region in my la- in my homelands so we're we're always very blessed to to um, have taken care of them for all these years and during those times me and my grandpa my grandpa would pack me on his back all over the place on the on the land and it's muskeg land it's not easy to walk on it's not hard you have to wear constantly wear rubber boots all the time every day because it's muskeg land and um, and as I was growing up I could see over the years that my water was exceeding over the top of my rubber boots and anyways this one time going back a little bit my grandpa took me to this one place he needed to talk to me I was of an age where he needed to talk to me and uh, I was about 10 years old and we sat down at this lake one of my favorite lakes and uh he told me that one day when you're when you're an adult and you have children you come back here there might be only a set of loons and they're going to you're going to only see it all this conversation is in my language only at that time and then i often wonder what he was talking about and as i walk around the lakes and the tundra all the time water is getting over my rubber boots all the time and i keep telling my mom Mom, there's so much water on our trails, like, like, what's going on, you know? And she said, well, things are changing, it's getting too hot. And that was like 30 years ago. As time went on, um, 
we we go home to the, to our homelands. I I would go home probably every second spring. Uh, we go home in April to the homelands, and then and then we leave in June. That, that was our life because we harvested muskrats and we um, harvested beavers and we caribou would come. We have a caribou herd, the porcupine caribou herd. That's about hundred. Right now they say it's about 150 to 170 strong. Years ago, the caribou used to just cover as they migrate through. They were just so many of them. They're just like big herds. And I remember my mom laying me on the ground and I could hear the caribou grunting. She lay me on the ground and they would just walk by. Just amazing. And then they would, the cows would come by and they'd have their young ones on the, or they, they would come by and they're pregnant. And our camps have to be, remain really quiet because the, the caribou cat cows are sleeping out on the lakes and they rest there and they what they do is they eat the the fresh greens that the muskrats bring up through their they build their houses and the muskrats bring this um, bring this special food up for the cows so that they could they can become stronger and and nourished and make their way all the way like many many miles to the arctic coast to have their young ones in northeastern Alaska and in New Bealwood country up near Herschel Island and they'd have their young ones along the coast so they anyways that's how many animals that I I was so fortunate to see and to live with and now we go back there the permafrost has melted so bad so much and there's so much water that um, the lakes are draining away Those, those big lakes are now draining away and people don't go out there anymore. Willows have grown so thick over all the caribou food in the places that caribou used to come and eat and graze for days and days and days. So all that has now been covered up with willows and, um, and all the big lakes because of the permafrost melting the big lakes have drained away and uh, so crow flats is very very different now and you're very lucky to see a few ducks and some geese fly in now there's a few that still come in but not as many and there's many songbirds and many birds that um, that I grew up with and that were my friends are no longer there they're gone now so like a couple of times I've traveled different parts of the world over over my life and I've seen some of those birds and it, it was so nice to see them because no to know that they're still alive somewhere but they don't come our way anymore a lot of them so climate change has taken a very very terrible horrible effect on our way of life we're now becoming town people like we live in towns and and we try to hunt from the community the two weeks that you would get off, we've now we've now created our own governments, governments that are now based on the white system of governing, um, like such as territorial governments and federal governments that, that that's set up. So now we we're, we've become bureaucrats to a system that doesn't allow us to be people of the land much anymore. So it's a two-week holiday in one year. And what can you do in two weeks, really, to educate your youth, to educate your young, 
to give them your language, your culture, to teach them everything about uh, the earth and what it means to us. And, and our spirituality is so much connected to the natural laws of our environment that so we're losing a lot as Indigenous peoples here in the Arctic. And as I work with um, Indigenous peoples in other southern communities in the Yukon, like right now, we have no salmon. There's very little salmon coming up our rivers now. And um, our major food sources, such as moose and caribou that we've lived on, on, on all our lives, are, have now declined at a very fast rate. So therefore, we are a people that are struggling right now. We're struggling with food insecurity issues. We're struggling with chronic diseases creeping into our nations because of lack of traditional foods and, and cultural activities on our homelands. When you ask, how is climate change affecting your people? Well, it's here, it's here and now. It's gonna stay, it's gonna escalate, it's gonna get worse. And we have to struggle to adapt on a daily basis we woke up this morning and it's July and there's snow in the mountains. That's natural. There was always snow and glaciers in those mountains about 10, 20 years ago. There was ice in those mountains. This is nothing new. But when I woke up this morning and I look at those mountains, I was just like, thank you so much. We're going to have fresh water. We're going to continue having fresh water that there is snow. There's came this morning in July on the mountains. So I was very happy about that. So, um, yeah, that's my story. The impact is huge in my area in North Yukon where the permafrost is melting because that means there's all this crazy vegetation that starts to happen, like willows starting to grow everywhere and it's affecting the caribou herds that used to graze in those areas, as I told you in my story earlier. It's affecting the spawning areas because then the spawning areas for the fish are being washed out. Um, they're just become murky, high water um, that can't hold eggs in 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 the in the low spawning areas down below. The the salmon like to spawn in low water, dig out gravel, spawn, and then male comes along and sperminate, and then and but the sperm maybe the sperm is not go, getting to those eggs and holding those eggs. You know, like there's. There's problems because of this high, murky, fast water that's caught because of the permafrost melt. There's all kinds of, these are things that I see for myself that um, where fish do spawn in my area and things like that that I have seen. So, I mean, how could they survive in that? So it's affecting, it's, it's affecting everything, everything drastically up here in the Arctic. We do community, very much community-based research, research that's going to benefit the, the First Nations communities and people living with the First Nations in their territories. So if they request us to um, ask the Arctic Institute of Community-Based Research, who, uh, who I'm the Indigenous Collaborator, Director of Indigenous Collaboration for, with, I, uh, they come to me and, um, and they ask, what can we do? And then I give them different scenarios and then we develop the proposals for them. And so far, we have been very lucky to get funding from um, Health Canada, the Climate Change and Adaptation Program. Unfortunately, we heard, we heard that it may be its last year this year, but we've been accessing dollars through that program to try and do research and strategies, food security strategies with the people in those communities. When we do get the funding, what we do is we create a local committee 
who guides the project. We, ca- we hire local people, coordinators, to coordinate our, our activities, such as the, the field work that needs to be done in terms of getting interviews and, and setting up meals for the communities where we can have focus groups. And um, we also, I get them to um, set up interviews with the two oldest male and female in the community. They will be now in their 80s and 90s. And uh, so we sit down with them and then from their stories, we create a methodology, uh, sort of, as a very community-based methodology where we create questions from what they say and then we go to the rest of the communities and we ask, is this viable for now? The hardest question that we ask the old ones is that what, how, how do you see your people surviving through all the changes that you have seen and witnessed and experienced in your life? What would you like to say to your people to survive long term? So that's a very tough question and they take a while sometimes to answer it. Some of them are in tears and because they've seen such abundance in the past and now there's hardly any. And then they worry about their future of their grandchildren. They worry very much, but they come up with strategies because they have lived also through times of famine in their lifetime. At this age now, at 80 and 90 years old, they have experienced some, some hardships in their past. So they're able to share their strategies as to what their people should be doing. That's what we do in the communities and then we come up with a, an implementation or a recommendations from their own people. We don't use their names, we use their actual quotes of what the people say. And we um, make sure that every um, recorded material, everything stays with the First Nations government. We take care and we decipher what we, what, what we take from them and then we make it into a, a, a report and, and most times I do also a film along with it so that they can have a film for their own people and their youth. And, that, and then we do two reports. One, a very academically type report for, for our funders. And we also do a tabletop copy with all kinds of photos of their own people so that they will have that. And then, they, and then we have a, maybe a 20 minute documentary on their people or, or a 10 minute film, whatever we have funding for that we can do. And we get the youth, we train the youth to, we take two, three, four youth and we, from the community, we train them about everything from climate change to uh, it, its global effects on our local local area, mm-hmm. as well as food security in the world, insecurity in the world, and its effects on here us here. And we educate them a lot about, and also contaminants, long-range contaminants, and how it's gravitated to the Arctic, and how we have to uh, um, watch and monitor that as well as life goes on. And uh, so we educate them a lot and then we train them to be researchers in their own community. We actually give them a set of questions and they sit there in front of an elder or their own people, their own relatives, their own people, and they start a dialogue. And it's amazing the amount of information that they give those young people in the, from the communities. And it's, uh, so that is a very community-based type research that we do. And we then come out with a the recommendations that the people say. A lot of it is now we have to start getting into developing more community-based gardening. It's not only here that we're seeing this. I mean, Alberta, Alberta, British Columbia and Saskatchewan were on fire this summer. Tremendous droughts. These are areas of high production of food for Canada. 
And if people, the naysayers will sit back and say, you know, this is not climate change where, you know, we don't have to adapt. We don't have to bring down our, our emissions, oil and gas, burning of oil and gas and industrial development and, and that kind of thing. That's, uh, that's always uh, like a D8 cat with no driver. But, you know, they have to come to the realization that this is affecting them drastically as well. That, you know, their country is burning, or lo we're losing farmlands, we're, uh, who, who are we going to depend on if we don't have our prairies to produce? So, and then we're having droughts in those areas. So Canada together and, and all of us need to come to the realization that, you know, we have to, we have to adapt, they have to adapt. Not just us, it's not just people in the Arctic, it's people everywhere. And Canada doesn't even have a food policy. And fundamentally, that's our livelihood, that's our life, food and water. And those have to become the most important issues in this day and age and forward from now on, I think. This has been a Polar Voices Perspective with Norma Cassie of Vontok Gwich'in First Nation. You can find full episodes of Polar Voices and other featured perspectives at thepolarhub.org. Polar Voices is produced by the UN Museum of the North in collaboration with the Arctic Institute of North America as part of the Polar Learning and Responding Climate Change Education Partnership.